The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 10th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, he said to them, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved, and who will come in and out and go find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ is your good shepherd. He leads you beside still waters. He restores your soul. He leads you through the valley of the shadow of death. He even prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. That is who Jesus is for you. That is Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. That is how you are to understand the Psalms, how they point to him. Indeed, how all of the revelation from the one true God points and find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Sadly, many of us, and by us I mean the church as a whole, have a low view of our Lord Jesus. Maybe it's because in an effort to be creative or to try to apply a particular message to our lives, that is, we, teachers and preachers, we stop relaying the fundamentals of the faith. We just stop communicating things that we take for granted. Okay, now we all know what the Christian doctrine is, now I'm going to apply it in some creative or clever way. And sometimes being clever or trying to be clever is the worst thing that you can do in the Christian church, especially if it comes at the expense of doctrine. Now, why am I reminded that many of us in the church have a low view of Jesus? Why am I worried about our ignorance of our Lord, not only in the world, but especially in the church. Well, I made the mistake of running across a particular headline this week that serves as fodder for the sermon today. Here's the headline. 44% of Americans, American believers, I should say, think Jesus sinned, new survey finds. Here are the highlights from this particular article. Regarding belief in Jesus, 44% of respondents who believe in Jesus 
also believe he sinned, whereas only 41% say that he did not. So more American believers believe he sinned than not. 52% believe that, quote, the Holy Spirit is not a living entity, but merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. Well, there goes the doctrine of the Trinity. Additionally, the survey revealed that more people believe in Satan than believe in God as an influential spiritual being. That is, Satan is out influencing more people than is God. Well, if the Holy Spirit isn't a person of the Trinity, you can see why people might think that. Additionally, 49% are unsure if God exists at all. That might be the most important question to answer before all the other ones uh, are asked. Now, I realize the danger of polls. We might need to pay special attention to them this time of year or as we get close to an election. And this one was conducted by the Barna Group, who regularly makes headlines. I think the Barna Group's in the business of making headlines. And sometimes their numbers might be skewed in a particularly dark way. Uh, they often will convince you the sky is falling. How questions are asked and to whom they are asked really matters. But still, these numbers do comport with my anecdotal experience speaking to uh, Christians. Knowledge of who Jesus is is remarkably low, and even many Christians have a poor understanding of just who Jesus is. Maybe that is due to our attempt to attract unbelievers rather than build up the body. You see, there are kind of two different tracks you can go down as a church or a congregation or even a church denomination, right? You can try to attract unbelievers, and that will give you a certain uh, list of missions and objectives and goals. And to attract unbelievers probably means you won't be teaching doctrine very long. Or you can try to build up the body, which is when you have a gathering of Christians, you make sure that they know the fundamentals of the faith. And maybe many Christians or self-professing Christians don't know the fundamentals of the faith because the church has stopped teaching them because we are always trying to attract new people. So for today, uh, I do not strive, did not strive to create a message for you that would be particularly memorable or clever. Rather, I simply want us all to leave here today, and by leave I mean you walk out that door or you click the uh, off the tab of your YouTube or whatever it is. I want us to leave with a better understanding of who Jesus is. After all, if somebody calls you conducting a poll or research and they ask you about Jesus, I want all of my members to answer this question correct. Maybe we can tick up those uh, numbers just a little bit. So what of that headline? 44% of American believers holding that Jesus sinned. Please understand that this issue gets to the heart of the gospel. It is a gospel issue. And it directly contradicts the Bible. It directly contradicts what you heard in Peter, who was quoting Isaiah, meaning it's a doctrine held across all the covenants. 
This should be a question that Christians ace every time they are asked. So, Jesus, who was he? He was perfectly obedient to all of God's law, including the Jewish ceremonial law, the moral law, and the civic codes. The importance of Jesus being free from sin is that he is the sinless one who dies in our place. So, it is not only that he died a perfect death, he lived a perfect life that led to his death being possibly perfect at all, right? If he didn't live a perfect life, his death could not have been perfectly substitutionary or perfectly sacrificial. So his sinless life counts towards your justification, your righteousness. Jesus is, to use a recently controversial phrase, our, your, substitute. God's justice and holiness requires a perfect substitute, and if Jesus sinned, he is no longer a worthy substitute for you. Hence, it is critical that Jesus did not sin, or else he is just another good man who died an honorable death, but not one that could merit you anything. Now, we are at the heart of this doctrine that is frankly hated by many. Why did Jesus need to be perfect? Why did God have to come to us in flesh and live a perfect life just to be a death offering in our place? Well, it's because God's otherworldly justice and holiness required a perfect sacrifice. Now, you don't require that. If your children sin against you, you don't require of them a perfect sacrifice. You'd be happy with an apology if you're lucky enough to get one. And we kind of think, well, it, you know, doesn't God, can't God just work like that too? Can't God just kind of decide to look the other way? Can't we just say, well, I'm really sorry, God? Why does our repentance have to actually be rooted, ultimately, in the death of his own perfect son, to merit us anything. We would really rather God be a lenient kind of friend rather than a holy judge. And because we want God to be that, we've made God into that, therefore the idea that Jesus is our penal substitute, that is, he's paying the penalty, penal substitute for us, that just goes out the window. And when that goes out the window, you don't need Jesus to be perfect anymore. And when Jesus doesn't need to be perfect anymore, oh yeah, he, he probably sinned. I mean, I know how often I sin. How could it be possible that Jesus lived for 33 years? He never talked back to his parents. He never lusted after a woman. He never lied in his trade. He never uh, didn't honor the Sabbath. He never ate bacon or whatever kosher food could have been around, he never sinned. We wonder, really, why God would require the sacrifice at all. Why can't he, like the God of Islam, 
I've talked to many Muslims uh, doing outreach to students. I say many, I mean I've had four or five pretty long conversations with young men from all over the world who are Muslim, and they do not get this at all. The idea that God would become flesh just to live a perfect life, just to be a perfect sacrifice, to appease the holiness and righteousness of God because he demands it, because he's so perfectly holy and just. They say, look, if you're really apologetic for what you did wrong, Allah will he'll forgive you. He doesn't need a sacrifice. It's a big difference between us and Islam. But this concept of penal substitutionary atonement, it is really offensive to some. And if you want to know a phrase that's been bandied about in seminaries probably for the past 30 or 40 years, it's this, divine child abuse. That's what this doctrine is called, divine child abuse. Why? Because the father sent his son only to be tortured and die for you. Oh, sure, it benefits you, but it didn't benefit Jesus any. He had to be crucified for you. Now, never mind that the Scripture doesn't speak of it in this way, and you'll hear from Peter it's not spoken of that way at all. What does Jesus say? He says he lays down his life of his own accord. Does that sound like child abuse? Some people would say, ah, he sounds like a victim of abuse. He actually thinks it's his idea. Um... Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The point is that we shouldn't be in favor of a father allowing harm to come to a son, even if it benefits us. That's what they would say. And by the way, we're not endorsing abuse here. Abuse is a wicked sin to be repented of and punished as the law demands. But because the cross, or even because the cross is substitutionary, it strikes many as emotionally difficult, and so the doctrine is rejected entirely. But much is lost in that process. The view of Jesus is lowered. And what happens is that as this concept of divine child abuse is just accepted by seminarians, it gets accepted into the pulpit, and it's now become a kind of default position of the church. This doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, it's, it's, it's just gone from uh, the normal vocabulary of many Christians. And so, as I said, when the substitution is rejected, so too is the need for Jesus to be perfect, because he's only a worthy substitute if he did not sin. And if we reject Jesus as our substitute, then we've lost his benefit of his life and death. Well, what can we say about this today? Why am I talking about this today? What's the connection to that headline in our scripture? Well, as it happens, 1 Peter 2 addresses these points in a modicum of words. He begins by quoting Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 53 should click something in your mind. You need to know that is the suffering servant passage of Isaiah. It is seen as a prophetic text in the same way that Psalm 22 would be about the uh, foreshadowing the suffering of Christ. So Isaiah 53 is a text every Christian should at least be familiar with, and you should hear Isaiah 53 and think, aha, suffering servant passage, foreshadowing of the passion of Christ. What does that say? 
He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Well, there you have it. Okay? Isaiah said it. Peter affirms it, so you can't write it off as some obscure Old Testament passage. Peter brings it up and affirms it for this very reason. It's right there in black and white. Peter believes it's about Jesus. Peter's words are inspired of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when Peter says he committed no sin, that means that Jesus committed no sin. Isaiah and Peter both understand the importance of the suffering servant being without sin. The spotless lamb has to be perfect. This is bred into the law of God. You see it all throughout the law of God. In the sacrificial system, you do not see God accepting your leftovers as a worthy sacrifice. Okay? If you're going to sacrifice a bull at the temple, you don't get to take the 10-year-old stud out in the field that's on his last leg. He's about to die anyway. Well, I'll take him. I'll sacrifice. He's been a great, great bull for me and all, but I'll just take him to the... No, no, no. You have to take the best bull that you have. You don't get to take the sheep that's given you good wool for, you know, a decade or however long it is that sheep live, and then you get to take him to the temple. No, 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 you you take the best little young lamb you've got, the one with all the promise and life ahead of it. Okay? You take the first fruits, the tithe. You take that to the to give an offering. So this concept is bred into the sacrificial system. Therefore, it only makes sense that the one who the person who gives himself as a sacrifice for your sin as a person would be a person without sin. Peter goes on. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he entrusted himself to the one... I'm sorry. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Now you see the relationship between the father and the son. What does the son do? He entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. Does that sound like cosmic child abuse, right? No. Jesus understood perfectly that God as judge would do right. And also that his holiness rightly rightly required such a sacrifice. Peter writes in a fantastic summary of the entire gospel, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, free from sins, we might live for righteousness. There you go. That's the entire gospel message in one half verse. Very similar to what Paul says in another verse Christians should know. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He himself became sin... I have to read it. I know I said you should know it, but I still have to read it. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the blessed exchange. That's sacrificial language. Jesus being sinless died bearing our sins. It's kind of like this. If Jesus had any sin at all, if he had committed any infraction against the law of God at all, he couldn't take on any more. But because he committed no sin, he could bear all of the weight of the sin of the world. 
It's an all-or-nothing proposition. And what do we do with the real and the true freedom that we have because Jesus has died in our place? Well, Peter says in the very same sentence, he says, free from sins, we live for righteousness. This beautifully summarizes then the balance that we find as followers of Jesus between knowing that we have perfect freedom because of the sinless life that Jesus lived and the way then that we are called to love and serve one another. For there is no way to know how to live for righteousness without the teachings of Christ and the law of God. These things are not out of harmony with one another. Peter says, okay, here's the freedom that you have. Now what do you do with it? You live for righteousness. How do you know what righteousness is? It's revealed in the scriptures. It's found in the law of God, which Jesus does not contradict, although we do have much longer conversations about what parts of the law, of course, have been fulfilled. Now, I would love to respond fully to all of those other sad, tragic headlines that I read to you earlier, but time does not permit Let me simply say that it is tragic that Christians believe that the devil is the only active spirit in the world. Holy Spirit has been given to the church, and he is with us to this very day. Yes, the devil, as Peter will say in the third chapter, does prowl like a lion looking for someone to devour. But... We are strengthened and sustained by Holy Spirit. And I hope that you are hearing in the very language I'm using, I intentionally did not say the Holy Spirit, which isn't wrong, but it's not what you find in the Greek. You just see Holy Spirit, because that is the name of that person of the Trinity, of the second person of the Trinity. So in that language, I'm trying to communicate that we are speaking about a person, not some kind of force or symbol for the power of God. We relate to the Spirit who has been given to the church just like we relate to the Father and the Son. Well, what word can I leave you with on this day? Simply put, Jesus has lived a perfect, sinless life for you. He is your good shepherd. He has provided for you in every way. When you read that psalm, which Jesus is clearly referencing in the 10th chapter of John when he says, I am the good shepherd, it is Christ himself that you should think of. And like good sheep, might we listen for and to the voice of our shepherd living for righteousness as he has called us to do. Amen.